0: Hello everyone, hope you've had a great week. Just wanted to let you know that Sunday is the last chance to apply for the next Project launchpad. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have some sort of an idea of something you'd like to build. So why not build it? It'll probably be the last launchpad of lockdown, fingers crossed. So it's a great opportunity to launch an idea that you have in a low pressure environment with some amazing people around you people who joined the last cohort said it helped with accountability with motivation and also just meeting a group of like-minded people if you can make it it starts on the 20th of march so remember to apply before sunday and i'll see you there it's outofhours.org slash courses
1: basically people want to share their knowledge and experience with you always like people are flattered to be asked no matter how important they are they want to be able to go. From my experience, this is what I think you should do. Just always make the call, send the email, like what's the worst that can happen?
0: Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, the community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. There are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of non-profits, businesses, creative projects and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the show we have Tom Elliott, co-founder of Pizza Pilgrims. Tom set up Pizza Pilgrims with his brother James. They now have 14 restaurants across the UK, in London and in Oxford. They've also released two books, one on Italian food and one solely on pizza. After many ideas to start a food business, they had one that stuck. They wanted to start a pizza street food business, and they set about acquiring a vehicle and a pizza oven. This took them across the seas to Italy, where one week's trip turned into a six-week road trip, touring the country and sampling the local food. On their return, Pizza Pilgrims was born, starting first as a street food stall in London before growing into the chain of restaurants we know today. We talk about how the idea came about, their amazing success pivoting on the pandemic and his own surprising side project. I hope you enjoy. You have been working with pizza for over nine years now. You have, is it 14
1: restaurants? Yes, Fourteen, fifteen.
0: 15. Do you still like pizza?
1: Uh, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> Do you know, I had pizza, I go through waves a little bit of like eating loads and loads of pizza and then not eating it for a while, but I had pizza in our know, Camden pizzeria yesterday and you're just like, God, that's amazing. I just love it. We've just written this book about, you know, why the world is so in love with pizza and just why is it that pizza is the food that people turn to in their hour of need? I don't know if you've watched Soul, which is the new Pixar movie. Long story short, there is a scene where they have to prove to someone why life on Earth is worth living. And the thing that they do to make that point is give them a slice of pizza. And I think that kind of sums it all up.
0: Why does pizza make life worth living?
1: So it's it's great. It's a great question. And it's one that we've interviewed about. 10 or 15 people in the book and every single, the only question we asked everyone was exactly that question. Oh, really? (laughs) And and the amazing thing is that everyone comes back with a different answer. Some people are like, it's because it's round. So it like, it's, it's kind of approachable and like uh, unobtrusive. Some people are like, it's easy to share. Some people are like, it's one of the few things in life where the best version possible is not expensive, which I think is a really good answer. Uh, It's very hard to have the best car or the best steak without having loads of money but the best pizza is available to everyone
0: where does your story start so i know that you had a market stall in Berwick street 10 pounds a day which was the beginning of kind of street food mania so did it start with the street food stall or did it start with the book kind of where did that first spark of curiosity for pizza come from
1: I mean, unfortunately, there's not a like, oh, well, ever since I've been six years old. So I might just start like making that bit up. But um, no, it really wasn't that. I mean, obviously everyone loves pizza. It wasn't like I was a 10-year-old going, one day I'll run my own pizzeria and yeah, the world yeah, will yeah. be right. But I mean, if you really want to draw it back to the absolute beginning of the story, I mean, our parents have run wine bars and pubs all our lives. Like we grew up above both of those kinds of establishments.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: All over the shop. But we we were born in manchester our parents ran wine bar in Hale, which is a town outside manchester and then another one in Audley edge and we lived above that for a while but then we moved to gloucestershire and they ran a pub in gloucestershire we lived above that for probably 10 years of our lives and then we moved to dorset and lived above another pub that kind of like hospitality thing was just sort of so part of our growing up there was an inevitability of, of that kind of coming back into our lives then my brother who is actually the chefy one went and did a Cooking course for his 21st birthday, I think, in Italy, and and what came from that, and the original idea of us going like, let's start a business together, was let's start a pizza oven business, was the idea, and then Jamie Oliver started a pizza oven business. So we were like, okay, probably can't compete with him. The fact remained that we were like, we want to do something in food. Increasingly, we don't enjoy our jobs sitting at desks, and doing something in food would be would be the dream. And then at that moment, the street food thing started to appear and really started to become like, you know, a really exciting part of the London food scene. And obviously it was an avenue to start a business without a huge amount of money, which we definitely didn't have. 2011 came and it was increasingly apparent that you could run a sort of artisan food business from a, from a street food truck. And at that point, no one was doing, no one was doing pizza. So it's like, well, this is the food of the gods and no one's doing it this is this is this is an oversight so that horribly cold commercial place is really where the pizza thing came from I think the sort of hospitality thing is much more kind of romantic
0: I think it's good to be honest about that stuff, though, because sometimes ideas come from, you know, experimentation and passion. And sometimes they come from a sort of drive to prove yourself. It's better to just be honest rather than that mythologized, like, found a story, yeah. which is like, oh, and then we just stumbled into it and blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, it does take planning and it does take time. There's sort of different routes into it. But did you start it? as a side project in terms of the, f- the food stall side of it?
1: Oh, no, it was 100% a side project. I left to go on the pilgrimage from my job and I told them that I would be away for a week and genuinely they were expecting me back on one Monday later and I had to call them halfway through the week and be like, I'm not coming back for six weeks.
0: <laughs> Explain to people who don't know what the pilgrimage is, what, what that was.
1: So I think, we, you know, the cold hard commercial decision was pizza's the obvious gap in this exciting street food world and then so the next phase of that is like okay that's all well and good but we know absolutely nothing about pizza and I think also what had happened at that time is we realized why no one did pizza it's because to start a burger stall you need a small hot plate that plugs into a plug and it costs about 100 quid for a good one and to do a great pizza you need a massive pizza oven that weighs a tonne and takes three hours to warm up and actually doesn't cost you 100 quid. All that had been realized. And then we were like, we need to get a van to put this oven in because obviously we can't carry around without a van. Long story short, we agreed that was the plan. We called Piaggio, who make the ape, and said, could you put a pizza oven in this van? And they were like, categorically, you could not. It is too heavy for the van. It won't work. So we ignored hundreds of years of Italian engineering and decided that we definitely knew better. And we we decided that we would kill two birds with one stone go and get a Piaggio Ape from Italy because it was saving us some money to do that because it was cheaper than importing it and then at the same time we would drive said Piaggio Ape through Italy and try and learn something about pizza because we didn't know anything at all. So we literally bought this Piaggio Ape, never having driven one, in the tip of the toe of Italy in Reggio di Calabria, like just over the water from Sicily with a plan to drive it basically back up through through Italy in a week and then go back to my day job. And then we got in the van and we pulled out of the showroom and you're like, oh my goodness, this is the slowest vehicle that has ever been made in the history of the world. <laughs> we have footage of us being overtaken up a hill by a jogger. That is how slow the, the app is. We kind of knew it was not going to be like a proper driving experience, but we hadn't appreciated that literally going up a hill, this thing is, it's not going. And we, well, we definitely hadn't realized that you couldn't go on the motorways. So suddenly what should have been a one hour car journey between Naples and Rome or two hours or whatever it is, becomes like a 10 hour drive.
0: You call your workplace and you say, hey, you know, I was going to take a week's annual leave about that. It's, it's going to be a bit longer. How did they respond to that?
1: They were absolutely livid, to be honest. But, but unbelievably, I guess it's a weird thing here because I, we had the idea and I was like, amazing, let's totally go and do this. And I literally like quit my job the next week and then was like what have i done i have we're like months away from like is any kind of revenue i don't have i have a mortgage i can't I can't live for 6 months on no income so i literally quit a job working in advertising on uh, sky tv and then realized i needed another job so i had to get a new job immediately working on stan lifts so i literally like quit in a sort of fit of excitement and then was like oh I've completely misjudged this. And it was that those guys who, after I'd only been there for probably a couple of months, I called them and said, by the way, I'm, I'm going to be six weeks. So I do, I do feel kind of bad about it.
0: Not advisable to other people, I suppose. No, uh... I would say,
1: like, have the idea, be super excited about the idea. Don't quit your job straight away because you don't need to. You really, really don't need to. If you believe in it, you, you know, you'll find the time to do it. So it was literally at that point the business that we'd embarked on this whole thing with a business concept of catering and then in december we were like scrap that we want to have a place you can come up and buy a pizza with cold hard cash and we basically just contacted all the councils and said look would you give us a position on any of your street food markets and they all came back and said no and not only are there no places but there's a huge waiting list so And, you know, some of them were more, you know, absolutely firm than others, but they all said absolutely no way. So then and we just so we just kept emailing them and they just kept coming back like, no, you need to join the queue. So then we took to going down every day to all of these markets and standing in empty spots and sending them pictures. So we literally like every day it was like, yeah, it's so (laughs) annoying. It's just like, be more annoying. Be so annoying that it's easier for them to say yes than no.
0: Is this when you're still working in your full-time job? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, still working in a full-time yeah. job. So at that time, I'd left the agency who so kindly facilitated the pilgrimage. I do still feel bad about that. And I had started working at a company called The Week. It's so like a news magazine. Uh, and I worked there on a sort of, on a short-term contract. So it was, it was always kind of a three to six-month role. During that time was when we were going down, taking pictures of us in empty market stalls. We, I think we started by doing a dinner party for like 10 friends and like firing up the oven and cooking some pizzas. Then we drove down to one of my first ever advertising agency jobs and parked the van outside and catered for like 80 people for free. And we did a few other like just test things whilst we were trying to find our pitch. And then, you know, after two or three months of bugging them, the first people to to break were Westminster Council. And they said, there's a spot For you on berwick street market if you like it and so that was the first thing that came up and it was obviously we were like in the middle of soho this is too good to be true 10 pounds a day for our pitch and we sold our first pizza in march 2012.
0: berwick street for anyone who's listening who's not in london is one of the sort of busier streets of soho which is one of the busier places in london you're both working full-time at this point
1: so at this point my brother has quit he was on the ground and like in the back of my head, if it's really truth be told, I had sort of sat down and tried to do some back, back of a fag packet numbers and basically come to the conclusion that there's no way this business is going to be big enough to support two of us. It's just not going to do enough money to, to, for two of us to, to be able to live off it. And I sort of come to the conclusion it would be something that I would do and like really throw my heart into in order to be able to prove to someone that I started a business in order to get a different job, basically when we first started on berwick street james would go in and set us all up um we had one guy who worked for us and then i would come down for my lunch break and work on the van for the busy period which was basically like twelve thirty till one thirty, and then i would go back to my desk and do the afternoon session and that was it so i was literally doing a day job and and the pc pilgrims thing and then because it was soho quite quickly like within a month we started to get you know our we're having a launch party for this. Could you bring the van to this? And, oh, I organise such and such festival. So we we did start doing more evening stuff as well. And it started to get to the point where it was like, I'm basically working every hour of every day for two, three months, which is fine. Yeah, that's kind of part of the course. But And then we got offered our first event event, which was the Cheltenham Jazz Festival, uh, mm. believe it or not. Um, and we kind of took the decision that we'd do it. And it was just kind of you know, our little van couldn't drive to Cheltenham. So you have to like hire a low loader to take the van. It rained the whole time. We lost so much money. But it, it was the first taste of like, oh, okay. So if it hadn't rained all day and there had been all these people, we could have done pretty well out of this. And I think we did another event. We did one of those London festivals that sort of up near like Victoria Park what's that called field day we did field day in may of that year and we took a lot of money on the first day and i think that was the point where i was like okay this this could be something actually that if we get it right could could support both of us i'm going to quit my job and i'm going to give this the summer to like see if this is the thing that we can build so i did that i was fully in we did as we did literally did everything we could do at that point so we did you know any anyone that would have us we did a lot of like film sets, I remember. We did the World Vertical Dance Championships, which is like a pole dancing competition, essentially. We just did everything. We did everything, everything, everything that we could do. And um, by September, it was like, do you know what? I think this is, this is something that I'm, I'm not going to go back to a job straight away.
0: Let's talk money. Let's, let's start at the beginning. How did you manage to afford the uh, vehicle? The Is it called an ape?
1: An ape, yeah. So the whole business was started on a, on a Barclay card. It was about 10,000 pounds, I think. I mean, it still amazes me that someone who has basically no income can just get a credit card and put the 10,000 pounds in it without being asked any questions. But that's what happened.
0: Were you nervous that you wouldn't be able to pay it back?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I'm definitely a worrier in that regard. Um, but then I think the interesting thing is that everyone always says, oh, you know, such a big risk you took and the 10,000 pounds was a risk for sure. Mm. But other than that, I really didn't risk that much. You know, I didn't have kids. I didn't have a job that I loved. I didn't have like a big salary that I was walking away from. There wasn't that much risk, really. And I think that's the thing about it is like, it's so much harder to do it as you go through life, unfortunately, because, you know, there's that weird thing of like, yes, you get more experience and so you can apply that experience better and maybe your chances of success are higher. But the risk gets real, I think. I think financially and like, obviously if if you have dependents and like, you know, it's pretty big call if you've got like two kids and a mortgage to be like, I am going to walk away from a guaranteed salary and go and give this a crack. I mean, obviously, you know, everyone's different and you can calculate the risk and work out how long you can do it for and all that stuff. But you know, that pressure is huge. If it's like, I've got six months to make this work. That is not an enjoyable six months.
0: Did you calculate it? Did you kind of go, okay, if this doesn't work out, this is how much we need to pay back and this is what it would look like? Yeah, I think
1: we did. I think um, we we worked out, I mean, what what are some of the numbers I remember? I remember on my back of a fag packet calculations when when we were getting towards the end of summer, I was like, this business would need to take a £100,000 a year to be able to give us, both me and James, the salaries that we walked away from, probably. I think, thinking about that now, that, doesn't really stack up, I don't think, because <laughs> I'm just like, I mean, I don't think we were. I imagine we were probably on like t- low twenty grand salaries in advertising, something like that. A hundred grand revenue, I think, is where I got to. So like, so, but then I'm pretty certain that we wouldn't have made enough profit to pay for both of us to have the salaries. But anyway, I remember that number of a hundred grand a year was like the target revenue, and we didn't come anywhere near that in year one. I mean, to be clear, we were a long way short. I remember that we paid each other from the business a hundred pounds each a week
0: did you have savings then
1: so I had a some I mean no is the answer we, all of the money went on the credit card but I did have my wonderful wife she also works in advertising we had at that time you could get an interest only mortgage and we only had a tiny flat so actually our mortgage was almost non-existent it was it was a tough year for sure but it was, it was, it was doable. The other thing that did happen that came to the rescue, I mean, we were super lucky on this, is the book. The book came along and we got paid in advance for the book. The book came about and is a moral, is a kind of a real moral story of like, never look down on any kind of coverage. We, we went and did this trip and we came back and we got a 50 word piece of coverage in the Hammersmith and Fulham Chronicle. I have absolutely no idea how that came to be, if I'm honest. I really, really don't know. But off the back of our 50-word piece in the Hammersmith and Fulham Chronicle, got a call from an agent being like, love this idea. Like, would you ever consider writing a book about your trip through Italy? And we were like, definitely, we haven't thought of this, but okay. And that led to the first book.
0: So you have no idea how it got featured?
1: No, I have no idea how it got featured in the Hammersmith and Fulham Gazette. I can only imagine that we contacted them because how would they have known otherwise?
0: Did you contact them?
1: I honestly don't remember because we didn't really have anything to say at that point. We'd been on the trip. I think the one proactive piece of coverage that we did, and maybe it came from that, there's like a local, in Dorset where we live, there was like a really local, like almost like a sort of ad sheet type thing called the Blackmore Vale magazine, which is like a magazine about life in the Blackmore Vale, which is like a part of Dorset. And we, I think we did approach them and we were in that. And I, maybe like someone from there knew someone at the Hammersmith and Fulham Gazette. I lived in Hammersmith and Fulham. Maybe we applied to like Hammersmith Council to get a food license. That could have been it. And maybe they said, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's quite an interesting story. Maybe that, that's probably how it happened. I think that's mm. probably how it happened. Because you have to apply to a local council to, to be a food business. That's why we would have contacted the council. And that's why we would have been in the Hammersmith and Fulham Gazette.
0: Boom, Chronicle. we've cracked the puzzle. It's good. good. It's always funny because I think with books, like books are one of these things that people seem to get approached about. And it always seems like this kind of crazy, serendipitous thing. And I'm always just curious, like what actually happens. But often it is kind of serendipitous, but it comes from, as you say, like things that you've done that kind of have unexpected outcomes.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And I I mean, I don't know this at all, but my theory on publishing is essentially you're a publishing house. You have like four or five books that you print a year that will sell a million copies and will make all of your profit. Cause obviously like a book once there's a lot of cost to develop it, but no cost in it. So if you sell a million copies of it, you make a lot of money, but you also have to employ a whole team of people to run that company for a year, right? So essentially you have five books that knock it out of the park for you. And then you have to fill six months of people's time with anything. So like, as long as your story is interesting enough, it's worth them taking a punt on you because actually they've got to fill the time anyway. They're still paying the people. That's my theory. I have no idea if it's true, but it does. It ties into your feeling that like books are quite serendipitous, and actually, it's a very human thing. And like someone's like, oh, "I love that idea. That's great." You know, or I or I happen to be interested in that particular thing. So, yeah, it definitely. It, you know, it definitely wasn't a sort of well-constructed plan. The book coming about.
0: I read somewhere that you said the idea for a pizza van came between the fourth and fifth pint in a pub in June 2011. And I love that. And I'm curious. First, I'd love to hear a bit more about that night, if that is true. Uh- <laughs> that is true. Go on.
1: It was in the... That the, so that, that that fateful night was in the uh, the Eagle on Askew Road. I mean, we were just sitting there, you know, we had uh, both, myself and my brother, had, had desk jobs for... I think I had 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 a desk job for about six or seven years at that point, And was just so adamant that it wasn't what I wanted to do. And was so, you know, we, at this stage, just to bear in mind, what else had we done? We'd applied to be on, do you remember that show, the restaurant where Raymond Blanc, like did a sort of, it was kind of like the apprentice, but it was purely about restaurants. We'd applied to be on that show, me and my brother, we failed, obviously we didn't even get on, but, um, you know, we, we had looked at uh, trying to get a pub in West London. But we didn't have the money to do it, and we were sort of so completely short of the uh, the experience or the finances or the backing to do it. There've been two or, two or three other ideas that we'd had around, like starting a food businesses. So we were desperate to start a food business, and I think it was that night that we were like, "Look, we have to, we have to do this." Like, what? And James had just come back, I think, from his time in Italy, and the sort of pizza of an idea came about, and that that's where the seed of like pizza started. And I think you know the fourth and fifth point is a. It's, a, it's quite an interesting, uh, it's quite an interesting time because like before four pints you're pretty much like not sure after five pints you're basically <laughs> everything to say is drivel, but somewhere somewhere in the middle there I'm sure there's like sort of Dylan Thomas. Thing around like between fourth and fifth pint is where the real magic happens. So I like to think that is a, that is a thing. Truth is, if I have more than four points now, I fall over basically.
0: What is the difference between this idea and one of the many other ones that you had? Why did this one happen and the other ones didn't?
1: There were there was just some moments that were like, yeah, okay, I think it was going down to see the guys at Curb. And and the whole street food, the street food angle of it, once we got past the pizza oven bit and got to like pizza, like Mm. going down and meeting some of those guys who were still mates, who had been doing at that point some of them street food for like three or four years, and just seeing the first versions of Curb, which was actually called Eat Street back then. It was up in King's Cross, and it was like it was a real kind of movement. And and you know, being completely honest with you, like, as with everything like this, it sounds like when you talk about kind of like, you know. 70 San Francisco it's they make it sound like it was this incredible thing but actually like when you were there it feels a bit less exciting than it actually is, it seems in in the rearview mirror yeah you, know, you went to curb and it was just like this incredible thing but you know from memory it was cold and wet and there were probably five bands there and it wasn't like there was a two hour queue for every van and all that jazz but it was gen like really brilliant people selling really fantastic products. so I think seeing that for the first time and being like I can totally see us being part of this. And it looks like fun, was, was a big moment. Then there was a big moment where I emailed my one of my most senior bosses. So I, I, we had the idea of the van, I quit. And then I, I found out from someone that the, the strategy director for the company was also quitting to go and start a bakery. I just sent her an email being like, you're quitting to start a bakery, I'm quitting to start a, a pizza company. We should at least go for a coffee. So she was like, absolutely, When do you come for a beer in my house in Camden? And long story short, her husband is a food critic called Tim who writes for the Financial Times. And he was just so enthusiastic about the idea because at this point we'd started to form the idea of this pilgrimage and like go and pick the van up and bring it back and learn about pizza. He was just so, so enthusiastic that it was just infectious. It was like, actually, this is an idea that people are excited about. We've got to go, you know, it just felt like, yeah, this is the one. So I think, you know, there are moments where you're like, and also, you know, we had definitely floated a lot of ideas to our friends and it was definitely at the point where everyone was like, oh, okay, yeah, here another idea you're going to do. And you just get that feeling of like, they don't immediately raise an eyebrow. They raise it like after five seconds, you're like, okay, maybe there's something in this. And I think that's interesting. You know, we had floated a lot of ideas and that was the one that seemed right. And I, I think there's a lot of feeling out there maybe that like your idea just comes to you in a bolt of lightning and it's just, it's the only idea you have and you're obsessed with it. But actually, I don't think that's true. I think just keep, you know, just keep thinking about stuff and see which one lands.
0: It's an interesting one. I think, you know, the example that you give They're both is telling people your ideas, which is another kind of misconception I think people have often is like, oh, I need to kind of work on it privately or you shouldn't tell people, you know, my idea or whatever. And it sounds like actually, A, like those two examples, you've got feedback from friends and you can kind of compare when, when they're excited and when they're not. And also with, you know, if you hadn't reached out to the the woman with the bakery, you wouldn't have met this this food critic. So it's like these great examples of actually, you know, talking about your ideas actually, is very good
1: it's to me it's it's essential and it's like it's such a i mean i hate the word networking because it's just got this horrible negative connotation around it Mm. of like just very sort of shallow and hollow and but i think just just talking to people about stuff like just always make the call send the email like what's the worst that can happen like you know this strategic director lady like i didn't know her she didn't know me like she there was no reason for me to contact her other than I just felt like let's give it a crack and I think the the thing for me that I had a massive learning is like basically people want to share their knowledge and experience with you always like people are flattered to be asked no matter how important they are they want to they want to be able to go from my experience this is what I think you should do and I think if you give people that opportunity you know, it happened to us so many times. Social media is also a fantastic thing for this because it, it just levels the playing field. But, you know, we, we contacted, once we'd done the van for a year and we were like, oh, actually winters on street food are pretty hard. And we had the idea to, to do a first pizzeria. Like we reached out to Russell Norman, founder of Pulpo, which at the time was like the coolest restaurant in London. He had literally been on the evening standard like that month with was literally the front cover and it was like King of Soho. He was just like the coolest restaurateur in town. And we just tweeted him and said, Look, crazy idea, but like, could we just take you for a, a beer and just talk about restaurants? And he came. And like, there was no reason for him to come, but people love to share their knowledge. They want to do it, they want to they tell you what they know and what, how to impart it to you. And that's just human nature. I mean, that just goes through the ages. Taking away the sort of networking negative thing, I think just having that thing of like, people want to share. Their knowledge with you, like if you reach out to people, obviously people are busy, and people you know we still get emails if I'm honest with you, where it's like, hey, so um I want to start a pizza company in central London like would you come and like spend half a day with me and tell me how you did it and it's like, no, that is absolutely not the same. That's a different thing. All I want to do is be able to like see someone as like taking the initiative themselves, not just someone looking to copy your homework, but someone going like look I've got to this point and I've hit a hurdle would you help me I'll bend over backwards to help you if it's like I want to do what you've done how do I do it that's that's a very very different question to me
0: why do people reach out and say that because it does happen a lot right is it just that they just want to sort of quick Uh,
1: I think for the same reason like what's the worst that can happen I'll email back and be like look, I'm really sorry but you know more than happy to answer a specific question, but I'm not just gonna like lay out a blueprint for you. Also, it doesn't work like that. Like, you know, it's so much about context and timing and luck and the way the ball bounces. I guess so much of running your own business is about adapting and being able to take the blows that come at you. And I think that that is just a, a massive, a massive part of it. And trying to build this crazy playbook that's like this is exactly what I'm gonna do. To my mind, I just, I just cannot understand that thinking, but it is kind of the thinking of like tech businesses. and I'm just like, but how do you know what's gonna happen in six months or a year or building the, the business with a view to eventually becoming profitable? I just can't get my head around, but I know that's like just my idiocy, but I'm the guy who told Will Shu that Deliveroo, I didn't think it was gonna be something that might work. Turns out he was right. <laughs>
0: It's interesting because you, you, you strike me as somewhere in between like the passionate entrepreneur and the planned kind of commercial entrepreneur, like the accidental and the planned. Which do you think you fall more towards? Do you think you're more of a kind of passion driven at the expense of maybe some of them the more like, uh, like operational finessing? Or do you think you're more operational at sometimes the expense of losing the kind of heart and soul?
1: It's, it's such, a, such an interesting question. I think basically the answer is I love a plan. But I am so, I have the attention span of a five-year-old. So I have no, I, I love building a plan and being like, this is a potential scenario that I can see playing out. Mm. But when it changes, I'm totally cool with that. So it, uh, it's, a, it's a very weird one. You're right. Like you've kind of hit quite an interesting thing, but like essentially I wouldn't dive into something without a plan going like, here is a path that I can see getting me through the next year on this thing. But when after three months, there's a massive left turn. I'm not like, oh no, no, that's the plan. We've got to stick to the plan. I'm like, cool, let's just go with the flow. And I think my brother even more so than me is like, go with the flow. Like he's very comfortable to go in something with no plan. Certainly what worked for us is like, don't don't get your knickers in a twist if the plan changes. Like, you know, if you're like, this is what I want to do. And the whole world is telling you that they don't want that. Obviously they're really great businesses. You know, they do that for 30 years until they're Amazon. And that's cool. Like, and you know, I understand that you know, if your vision is that amazing, you can push through and you can know that people don't want it yet, but they will. Mm. But broadly, if you're starting out and everyone, you know, you're going, I want to do pizzas with this topping and no one is buying it, be really comfortable to go like, okay, maybe I just need to move a bit more over here.
0: Do you have any examples of things that you thought were amazing ideas and then you launched it and no one liked it?
1: I mean, we spent three months and i mean three months like plotting out um a way for people to queue for our pizza at the van so basically we were like we're gonna have three pizzas on sale and we're gonna have three individual queues so you'll join if you want this product you'll queue in this queue this product will be this queue and this product will be this queue so then we'll be able to without even taking an order assess the demand for each of the three products and just make accordingly Uh, and then you'll get to the end and you'll take a special kind of marble to show that you've paid and then you'll put that marble into a pot when you've got your pizza and it was like this is genius like how has no one thought of this and we we plotted it and we did diagrams and we had you know signs for everything the whole thing and within like 20 minutes of being open we're like this does not work (laughs) at all like it's that thing of like when you have to explain to every single person who comes up the plan and the system you know you've got a problem
0: Did you have any like failures of things that people, that you thought would be like massive hits, stuff that you thought this is going to like supercharge the business and then it flopped?
1: I think the thing is, I mean, definitely there have been things that have gone wrong, but I think that's the point. It's like keeping it flexible means that you don't, you don't really dwell on them. We would, we would happily just go, yeah, we put that on the menu. Hasn't worked. We'll take it off immediately and move on to something else.
0: I'm quite interested in kind of how people deal with the ups and the downs of starting, whether it's a business or a passion project. I think you always have the kind of the highs of like, this is amazing, it's going so well, and then the points where it doesn't feel so good. What's been an example, I suppose, coronavirus has is-
1: That has not been uh, not been a high, high point. I think that was just such, such a side swipe. I mean, there was genuinely a feeling that I had when it first hit, when you're so confused and you're so like, is that it? Like, is that the end of that bit of that chapter? Um, it was just so like, boom, and they're all closed. But there was weirdly also, like, somewhere deep in me, there was a sense of relief that it wasn't a failure of my making. You know, I think when you're running a business, certainly I have always got this, like, base level of, like, nervousness that this is all going to go completely tits up. And everyone's going to be looking at me going, like, you really messed that up. So there was a weird sense of like, there's absolutely no, no one is going to look at me and go, that was your mistake. Working for someone else, you know, it has, has a sign cover, it has ups and downs, but they're pretty, you know, the ups are great. That was good. And the downs are, that was a bit of a tough day, but they're not like running your own business is like, Oh my God, that was just the most incredible feeling. We built that. And like, you know, those moments where someone buys a pizza off you for the first time, you're like something that I made from nothing, has been purchased by another human for money. Wow. Versus, like, I remember in our first restaurant, the electrics were hugely insufficient for the restaurant, and it was obviously like a tough time. Like, you know, we did, we needed the money coming in, and once every three months, the whole restaurant would just blow up. Uh, the main the main fuse blew up, and you had to then call UK power networks, who are like a sort of woefully slow company, and you'd then just be at their beck and call. It's like, well, we might come tonight, we might come tomorrow, we might come on Monday. It's like if you come on Monday and we lose a whole weekend that could be the end. So there are high, huge highs and huge lows. And the thing I always say is like the only way to make that manageable is with someone else. Because the highs are higher. When when you're high-fiving someone that you started a business with because you just sold the first pizza you've ever made, that is so much a better moment because you're sharing it with someone else who has lived the exact same thing as you. And when you're both sat there in a dark restaurant on a Saturday night going, when are they gonna come? That's so much better than if you're the only guy left in that room mm. who is like riding on that situation. So, again, I take my hats off to them. You know, the people who do it on their own are just that headstrong that they just don't need any of that. But I really believe a big part of the reason to start your own business, because it is basically madness to start your own business. Like, if you're a statistician, it is complete madness. The main reason to do it, a massive part of it, is to have fun and enjoy it. and as with everything in life, things shared are things better enjoyed.
0: I want to dwell for a second a bit on the on the lows because I think there are two types of lows and I'm always interested to kind of explore them. One is like these practical lows, which are, as you say, like the power's gone out. It's not my fault. Uh, it's very clear what needs to be done. It's just a matter. Of, it's, a, it's a form of stress, but it's not like it, it, you know what kind of the path and what needs to happen. Then there's the other kind of stress and low, which is like, I don't know what to do in this situation, you know, or where you feel personally very responsible for something.
1: The corona, The coronavirus thing, there was just that moment where you're like, I have no idea what to do. Obviously it's not my fault, but there are now almost 300 people. And I. it was sort of a three day period where it was really like, there was, there was a period of time where Boris basically came out and said, don't go to restaurants, but they hadn't closed us down and they hadn't announced the furlough scheme it was like 3 or 4 days and we we were just like so wait a minute so you've just told no one to go out and eat pizza at all we've got hundreds of people who are terrified because they don't really know what's coming and they have to go to go to work is to go into central london mm. and i don't know if we're ever going to have any money again to pay them and i it was just this horrible feeling of like having 300 children and being like i don't know I don't know how to help them through this. And then I remember the night I was sat in this very room on Zoom to the whole team or the whole management team with Rishi announced furlough. And we were like, is it going to be 40% of the salary covered? Is it 60? Like, what's it going to be? And when he came out and said 80, it was just like, I mean, our head of people cried. I just got really, really drunk. <laughs> it was just this moment of like, oh my goodness, like all of these people that I've you know, been so worried about We're going to get through this. They're going to get through this. That was a very scary moment. But I think, you know, the point is as a business, when you're facing something like, I just don't know what to do. You know, we're not rescuing lives. We're not in a hospital. It's not a life or death situation. If we can't sell, if the pizza we hope to sell, we don't sell. It's really not the end of the world. Let's just do something else. And I think think that has been probably one of our strengths as a business is we just not, we don't dwell on anything really. And, and and that's the good and the bad. Like we, where we sometimes suffer is like something amazing will happen, and rather than taking even like five minutes to go, by the way, guys, that was incredible. Like just well done, that's awesome. We're on to the next thing. Uh, the book is a good example. Like the book came out in November, and it kind of came out, and we got all excited up to it, and it was like loads of, and then it came out, and it was literally like it was a weird feeling of like, oh, well, that's kind of done now. That ship has sailed, and you're on to the next thing, and actually. You've got to celebrate your wins. You've got to. You've got to. You've got to. And we 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 aren't good enough at uh, doing that. We talked about ourselves for three, four, five years of just like oh we sort of stumbled into this thing and we don't really know what we're doing and you know I think that's the very sort of British like way to approach it. But I think it's it's worth taking something out of you know these sweeping generalisations. But the, the Americans are very very good at celebrating both celebrating wins and celebrating winners. Mm. Like I think in Britain, as soon as you are perceived to be successful, you are a target. And it's like, how do I take that person down? And obviously, you, do, you don't, you don't, you know, no one wants someone who's smart going, like, look how amazing I am. And we, you know, we definitely don't want that. But actually going, so you know what, that person has done fantastic thing, like, fair play to them. In American culture, that person is celebrated. That's the American dream. That's what that's all about. And we just, we, we have the opposite approach to that. I think it's problematic.
0: Let's go on to one of your massive successes, which is how you've pivoted in the coronavirus. Pivot. Yeah. You've launched Pizza in the Post, which is a DIY pizza kit.
1: I mean, it was. That was the, you know, if there was a silver lining to the last year, it has been that. I think we, you know, we, we spent, like, literally two weeks just going, like, what on earth do we do now? And then my brother, being my brother, just... Called me one day and was like, "I've been having this thought. We had thought in the past about doing a kit. Wouldn't it be great to be able to do a kit and you could sell it to people and they can make pizza at home and it it would be fun? But we just we never had the time to get to it and the ground. And then obviously coronavirus landed. And my brother just called me one day and was like, "I've been thinking again about that kit and I I think we could feasibly like do this. He was like, "Why don't we give it a try? So he sent me one and it was an absolute car crash. The one that turned up pizza mush essentially in this bag, but it was cold. So we're like, okay, well, that that works. And this is probably April 2020. So it was like two weeks after lockdown, a a week after lockdown maybe. And yeah, anyway, we just, all the pizzerias were closed. It just was such a weird feeling to have like nothing constructive to do. So we just poured our energy into that we literally were like making it blue pizza style. We were literally getting bits of card and like cutting out the holes for the different bits ourselves and just posting it to anyone we knew who lived far away from London and just see, see what, see what got there. And got better and better at it over the next couple of weeks. We closed all of the restaurant pizzerias because the team were really, really scared. And then after, after about two or three weeks, we started to get messages back being like, just so you know, like you're allowed to open as a takeaway. I would love to work if there's an option to work because I'm already fed up of sitting at home. So that, Reached a tipping point after about two, three weeks of lockdown. So we opened Victoria, our Victoria Pizzeria. We were like, well, let's, let's open it for Deliveroo. And let's also maybe do like 50 of these kits a week and like see if we can sell them. And probably it's just a fun Instagram thing. So we put it up on Instagram. We're going to sell. We're going to put 50 of these kits on sale tomorrow morning at 9am. So, you know, let's see how we get on. And we sort of assumed that would sell out in a week. And that those 50 went on sale and we sold them in like 20 seconds. And it was like, whoa. What happened there? So then we put another 50 out the next day and we sold them in 20 seconds. And I think at that point we looked, you know, we'd built this Shopify page and you could see that in that second day, something like 150 people had tried to buy one in the 20 seconds that had been the window. Like the demand had outstripped supply by three times in 20 seconds. So we were like, "Oh, okay. So then on the third day, we put 1,100 kits up. We were just like, we had this big crisis on Thursday because we're like, we we can't make these, we don't have the ingredients. We don't have the packaging elements. We don't have the team. We don't have the space. We can't make these in volume. There's obviously a demand there. Do we do we just like wait and build a bit of infrastructure and then try and sell loads? Or do we just go, now's the time. Let's just sell them and be very clear that like we will we will get it to you as soon as we humanly can. And we took the latter approach. We were like, let's just put as many available to sell as we can. And we'll just tell people that, They'll come as and when they come, but it will be before the 1st of May. And that's what we did. And we put 1,100 kits up for sale on the third day at 9 a.m. And they sold out in 50 minutes. And I think that is still our busiest hour of trading in the history of Pizza Pilgrims. Madness. you know. And then, then it was just like, oh, my God, how are we going to deliver this? <laughs> and it was like buying chest freezers off eBay, and it was dramas with ice, and it was begging the landlord to let us move all of our furniture out of the restaurant into the next door empty unit. Yeah, we've just been sort of fighting our way through. You know, we've, we've been doing it now for near enough a year. Like we've learned a lot about how to do this both from a production point of view. There's still huge things we need to learn, but also from a Shopify point of view. Last week, I think we sent out 9,000 kits. Wow. In a week. So it's just, Which is, you know, that was a bit of a perfect storm because it was pizza day and Valentine's day and everything. It's just been an amazing ray of sunshine through this whole thing. And I think it has kept the business above water and will, and will continue to do so until lockdown ends. And then my my feeling is that this is actually a new category and that this won't, won't disappear.
0: I think most people in that situation would find that quite scary to sort of tamper with a, a brand that they've built up over such a long time. You know, I imagine you're quite intentional around the experience that people have. But am I making assumptions or did that feel a bit scary? I think,
1: yes, it felt felt very scary. You know, we kind of obsess about this stuff. And and I think, you know, it, it was very important to us if we were going to do this kit, this is like exactly the same ingredients that we use in the restaurants and all that stuff. But I think, you know, restaurants are the poster boys for how bad it can be for a business in coronavirus. There's a lot of there's a lot of sort of space out there for people to, like just pat you on the back for having a crack (laughs) i think you know we we have undoubtedly you know we sent a lot of kits and there have been a lot of challenges in getting there but i think you know the the vast majority get there in great shape and it's brilliant Mm. but there are some that don't but i think that the overwhelming consumer message has been like good on you for having a try it was amazing and we you know when, when we started doing those early ones we were my brother was rating everyone's pizzas on instagram and it just created this amazing like buzz around it. And, uh, you know, we had all these influencers doing it and not really intentionally just cause they sort of approached us on Instagram and said like, would you send me one? So it was just a sort of lovely sort of joyous thing of like everyone was stuck at home and here was something like novel and fun and different and a way to like spend time with your family that didn't involve a screen. And we do try to make an experience that's like, it sounds such a sort of trite, awful thing, but like puts happiness at the front of it. Like, you know, we want, all we want is for people to come to pizza programs, interact with us in some way, whether that's through Deliveroo, Pizza in the Post, in the pizzerias, however, and walk away from that experience happier than when they walked in. And whether that is because the waiter was great fun or the music was brilliant or hopefully the pizza was fantastic or you just had a great time because the person you were with is brilliant. I don't care. I just want you to leave happier.
0: I've been to one of your, I think I told you before, been to one of your launch parties. Have you? I felt like I experienced the true kind of pizza pilgrim spirit there. There's free um, Aperol Spritz. There was free limoncello,
1: um,
0: really good tunes. And I thought, oh, this is, this is a cool brand. Where do you think that comes from? Like, do you just, like fun parties or is it like a <laughs> a planned out thing
1: i just think it's nice to put on a put a party for everyone i think i think it's it's just you know that's the reason you start a restaurant so that everyone can come and have a party i mean it should be the reason anyway like certainly if you start a restaurant to make loads of money you're an idiot basically would be my would be my thing i mean it's you know it's just not if money is your goal restaurants mm. are not the answer because it's hard work yeah. and it is you know it's just a constant so you do it because you love people. And yeah, I love I love those launch parties. We had a launch party in Camden, which is our newest pizzeria that has opened apart from Slice. And it it was our academy. And we did a party in that academy to open it on, I think it was like the 12th of March, 2020. And it was like that day they were announcing whether like gatherings of over 50 people were going to be allowed or not. And it was like, you know, Boris is going to come and talk to the House of Commons at 3 p.m. And the party was that night and we're like, do we cancel it or do we not? Anyway, he never did come and talk. Or if he did, I don't think he mentioned the 50-person thing. So we were like, screw it, let's just do it. It's too late to cancel it now. And we had this, like, exactly that party of, like, you know, free beer and free Aperol spritz and, you know, all that, or free pizza, obviously. And, you know, it still feels like the last party that London had to me. It was just, like, literally days later, it was, it, was, it was lockdown and it was just, yeah, th- those moments are great and I can't wait to get back to them. The best party we ever had was to open West India Key and it, was, it happened to be our fifth birthday, like five years, almost to the day since we'd opened, uh, since we sold pizza on Berry Street Market for the first time. And we're like, who, what band do you book to play the fifth birthday party? And we were like, five. And we managed to book the band five, the boy band, who you only get three of them. And they came down and they literally performed all of those ridiculous '90s boy band hits, and it was just incredible. It was just such a good party.
0: On the subject of music, yeah, you have another side project.
1: Ha, I do. I'm actually wearing my own merch from my side, other side project, uh, which just arrived yesterday. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm like a tragic, tragic Bruce Springsteen fan. Like. I've just really, really loved Bruce Springsteen. I've been all over the world to see him play, and yeah, we, you know, we I was chatting to a girl who runs a blog called Burgers and Bruce, where she only writes about hamburgers and Bruce Springsteen. And um, we were saying, wouldn't it be great to do a club night? Because Bruce fans are like famously obsessive about Bruce. It's it's truly like nothing you've ever seen before because it's not it's not like all bells and whistles and light shows. It's literally just a guy with seven other guys behind him coming out and genuinely loving performing so much that he'll perform for like four hours straight he never has a warm-up band because it's just like there's not time and then he'll be literally like dragged physically dragged off the stage like four hours after four hours later I think his <laughs> record show is like four hours 20 minutes solid so yeah we were like let's start a club night where we only play Bruce Springsteen and we did the first one in Pizza Pilgrims in West India Quay And we had 50 people and it was a bit of fun, this little party. And two years later for his 70th birthday party, we did, we had a thousand people in Oval Space just coming down to listen to eight straight hours of Bruce Springsteen. And it was, it's honestly a magic thing because you know, everyone in that room, you know, they've not gone unless they love Springsteen. So there's that rare feeling of like everyone here is absolutely obsessed with this person for the crown and glory of it, was we got asked by Columbia Records to do the launch party for his album in 2019. It was just like, this is surreal.
0: How did they find you?
1: Literally one of them came. Like someone someone uh, came along and then basically emailed us and said, look, my mate is the head of marketing for Columbia. I've been to one of your nights. I think it's amazing. Can we come down? So he came to the next night. And then when the when the new album was announced, that he was like, the only way to do this is with you guys.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, it's such an interesting story and I think such an inspiration.
1: Well, no, it's 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 been a lot of fun and honestly, thank you for having me. It's very, uh, it's, yeah, nice to be asked.